Well, the church gathered together here and in the worship center and live stream, it's good to be with you. Thank you for your faithfulness and your kindness during these very difficult and uh, different days. A couple of things, please be careful to look at the website and to see what's going on. We're going to be gradually opening up as the um, COVID realities allow when men's ministries, women's ministries. We hope to have a nursery in a few weeks uh, for parents to bring their children. Uh, good news, our school started this week and got a gradual way. I think the first full day was Friday for everyone. We had K through 12, about 550 children here, all wearing masks, all being very obedient, which was incredible to see. And once the, uh, the pre-kindergarten opens up, we'll have around 680 students here. So uh, we're going forward there. Pray that God will give us protection. But that's happening. So we're glad. Um, let's pray. Lord, as we stop now to uh, pray, we, we acknowledge that only you, Holy Spirit, can open our eyes and make application. And so we ask now you come, Holy Spirit. You teach, uh, exalt the name of Jesus, make application to our hearts. Lord, we need to know and to apply in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, we're in the, the book of Luke, and we're talking about uh, the issues of uh, last week we talked about the parable. A parable is a, is a statement that gets under your skin and gets in your mind, and you can't get it out. And so the parable last week we looked at, and we're going to make application from that. Today was a parable of, of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And the story Jesus told was of a Pharisee that was full of self-righteousness, and he looked down with contempt upon other people. And he stood in the middle of the temple, and he prayed with a great priestly-like voice, Lord, I thank you, I'm not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give everything that I give, everything I get. I give a tithe to the Lord. He said, I'm, I'm not an unjust extortioner or an adulterer or like this tax collector. And he was very proud of himself. And then Jesus said, but the tax collector came to the temple, slipped in the corner of the temple, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast in a sign of repentance. And he said, God, have mercy upon me a sinner. And so as everybody was listening to the story that Jesus wanted to get in their minds, he gave the summation statement. He said, I tell you that the tax collector went home justified before God and not the Pharisee. It's an amazing statement. And everyone there did a whiplash. He says, can you believe what he just said about a tax collector who was an extortioner, who did unjust things, who was a member of the occupational forces, who was universally hated compared to the Pharisee. So, and I said, Jesus said he went home justified. The word justified means made right with God, declared righteous with God, or really free. So this man went home right with God, declared righteous before God. So this morning I wanna talk about, about that issue. I wanna make application from that that a justified person is not only declared right with God because of the work of Christ, but it should be a person who is satisfied and, and really happy. So there's a book entitled Redemption Accomplished and Applied by a man named John Murray, taught at Westminster Seminary from Scotland, a wonderful man. But it's a, it's a book about the, our, our redemption has been done, but we need to make application to daily living. It's a wonderful book, but, but redemption, our redemption has been 
accomplished, is fixed, is certain. It's the gospel of done. For example, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Then the next verse says, And are justified, past tense, completed action. They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, through the blood of the cross. We've been purchased by the blood of the cross. And he goes on, he says, so that God might be just and the one who justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 3, 26, verse 30. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith, something that God does in his wonderful mercy. Chapter 5, verse 1, the gospel of done. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's done. It's completed. It's finished. Uh, Chapter 8 and verse 33 talks about the completed action of the work of God in our lives. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Past tense, completed action. Who is going to be the one who condemns? It is Jesus Christ. So, so it's, it's the gospel that's been accomplished. That should make us incredibly happy. That, that I am in Christ. It's done. It's, it, my standing is complete in him. And yet, we need to make application. So chapter 6 of Romans talks about the gospel applied. It talks about a present tense reality. If you study Greek, it's the, the and indicative becomes the imperative. Listen to chapter 6, a few verses. Verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves, present tense, present yourselves to God as those who have been bought from death to life. Verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient servants, you are servants of the one whom you obey. Verse 19, present yourselves as servants of righteousness leading to sanctification. And then chapter 12, verse 1, a very well-known verse. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God that you present yourselves, present tense, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. So I read this, and, and I, I, I think about, about us. I'm going to show you a little pie graph now that I want you to think about. It's a pie graph. Thing, that's it. Okay. If you read books on happiness, uh, joy, and you read studies by sociologists or psychiatrists or psychologists, regarding these things, and this is just a general breakdown. You don't necessarily, it's the exact science, but generally speaking, they, they will say, there's a book entitled Happiness is a Choice, and I read it years ago, and it's a good book, but it gives, gives way too much credence to, uh, that I can determine to be happy. So I, I want to be careful about that. So and most people say that, that uh, in your life, that 35 to 40% of who you are is your family heritage, your background, your basic DNA makeup. That's just who you are. And the Lord, by his Holy Spirit, takes who you are and makes you a new creation in Christ. But that's who you are. Um, example. Uh, I was talking recently to someone whose father was, was very old, and they said they were trying to clean up his apartment, and they found a stack of Montgomery Ward catalogs. 
Now, if you're a little bit older, Montgomery Ward was a catalog company, a company, but they've been out of business for 25 years. So these catalogs are 25 to 30 years old, and they had a stack of them. And for some reason, they thought that was valuable. My parents are 90 and 95. Every time I go into their house, there's just stacks of things that really need to be gotten rid of. I mean, stacks. I mean, if you're raised, though, as a child of the Great Depression and as someone who went through World War II, everything has value until it just molds away. Conversely, my daughter asked me to read a book a few years ago entitled Tidying Up um, by a woman from Japan. It became a real popular book. And in the book, she talks about getting rid of things, constantly purging. And I think young people constantly purge. And she said, if you want to know if you should purge something, you should hold up like a shirt and say, does this bring me joy? If it doesn't, get rid of it. And I thought, I don't, I don't get that. I mean, I have never held up a shirt and said, man, this really brings me joy. I don't get that. But, but, but if it works for you, it works. So I'm just saying that our makeup is different. It's just our family heritage. And then 25 to 20% of our response to life is based upon the circumstance in which we find ourselves. This is a hard season, brothers and sisters. This is a hard season. This is a difficult season we're walking through. Our, our local schools are, have just, I think, announced that they can only let 25% of the students back on the campus that's hard. I mean, think about it. the parents that are scrambling to make ends meet. Uh, we, we have people that are together and, and their marriages are struggling, parenting. We have people in isolation, so forth and so on. It's a hard season. But I want to talk to you about the 40% that we control. The 40% of our thinking, of our affections, of our heart that we can control in pursuing the issue of joy or happiness. So, in this difficult season, let me mention a couple of things. I was reading a cover article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday about a seven-decade love story. It's a wonderful story about a couple that moved to Durham to be next to their daughter. She developed Alzheimer's. She went into a, a home for older people. And on the day they were about to close the facility, her husband at age 93 moved in, rented an apartment down the hall so he could take care of his wife. And he just talks about how they tenderly, he's, he's tenderly cared for her during these months. It's a wonderful story. He's a retired pastor. So a beautiful story that he talks about their faith in Jesus. But in the middle of this article, there's a statement made that there's an estimate that 15,000 Americans died from Alzheimer's disease and dementia this past few months than otherwise would have because of facilities that made them socially distanced from people. Social isolation is bad. It quotes a professor of medicine from Duke Medical School that says, there are public health consequences of loneliness, isolation, and loss of connection to a beloved person that may be equally devastating as the COVID virus. For those with dementia, the greatest fear is the fear of abandonment in a world that doesn't make any sense. So we know that. But I read an article earlier about... This person says the, most, the group that's been the most negatively impacted by COVID-19 are high school seniors and college students. It's very interesting. Let me read a couple of statements. It says that the, the pandemic and its economic fallout are taking a toll on the mental health of many Americans. 
but the burden is perhaps greatest on those on the brink of adulthood, young people who are often seeing their dreams of careers, romances, and adventures dashed. And it talks about they did a survey of college students, and over 80% said the COVID-19 had negatively affected the way they think and process things. It talks about the skyrocketing uh, increase in depression among college students and suicidal thoughts among college students and how isolation has been very difficult. Uh, think about going to your senior year of high school or college and then somebody saying, well, everything's called off. Or, or your study abroad called off. Your grant to go somewhere called off. It's very difficult. So my, my whole point is this, that, that while we are safe and secure in Christ, we have to fight for our happiness, especially now. Uh, we're in a difficult period. We have to fight for our happiness, especially now, in this context, August 2020, during the COVID-19. And, and we need to fight for our happiness so that we can represent Jesus to those around us, so that we can be people who point forth the goodness of the Lord. Jesus says in Matthew 5, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. We need to let our lights shine and shine brightly. And, and, and so I'm going to talk to you about how to live and pursue happiness. I could give you 20 points. I'm going to give you five. This is, these are all a response to the justified Redemption accomplished and now applied. If I'm to live happily, if I'm to live happily, I have to every day understand and glory in the gospel of done. It's finished. It's complete. The gospel is that which covers my sin and makes me whole in the eyes of God. The book of Colossians is written by Paul to the church that was being buffeted by four or five streams of impure teaching that all had this common theme. It's fine to believe in Jesus, but you must have this vision or this experience or do this work or do this or do that to really be made complete. And Paul goes to great lengths in the book of Colossians to say the gospel of Jesus and the person and work of Jesus is enough. For example, in chapter 2, he says, you know, people say you've got to be circumcised. He says, no, no, no. He says, you have been circumcised in Jesus. Jesus has fulfilled every demand there. Or you must be baptized. He says, you've been baptized in Jesus. Or you've got to have this experience. He says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Not some ecstatic dream. And then he says in chapter 2, he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made a a life together with Christ, having forgiven all of our sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them. Paul says, not only are your sins forgiven, but they're canceled. They're wiped clean. They're, they're, they're gone. Not only are your sins forgiven and wiped clean, but, but, but the Lord in his mercy has disarmed the rulers and authorities that stand against you. So, so he says, man, be glad. If you have the gospel of Jesus and you're saturated with the goodness of Jesus and the mercy of Christ, you've got it. And so I think I need to wake up in the morning and, and, and you know, the, 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 you know my 
conscience condemns me, the world condemns me, I don't feel like I measure up, and I, and, but, but where do I go? I'll run to Christ. I run to the gospel. John chapter 10, Jesus is talking about the good shepherd, and the good shepherd calls his sheep, and he's come to give life and give it abundantly, but he says this in verse 26, or 27, he says, listen, my, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. They hear my voice. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And Jesus says, my sheep have been given to me. And my sheep are in the hand of the Father. My sheep are in my hand, and no one can snatch us from his hand. There's security in that. There's joy in that. So if if I'm going to be happy, I've got to be a person who's saturated with the gospel of done, grace, mercy, it's finished. Number two, I'm going to be happy. I need to understand and think about the life of Christ. Um, it's, it's, it's easy to talk about or to think about, to glory in, as we should, the cross, Christ our sacrifice. Rose victorious over death, ascended to heaven, he's poured out the Holy Spirit. I, but but I, I sometimes am guilty of not thinking about what we call in theology the active obedience of Jesus. He lived his life in such a fashion that he fulfilled the demands of the law as a sinless sacrifice for our sin. That if you want to know how to live life and approach life, you look at this man who was God in the flesh, whose name was Jesus. Romans 8 says this, verse 29, those before knew we also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. I mean, think about that. God in his mercy desires for us to become in our own personality, with our own makeup, like Jesus. Blows my mind. So, so I've, I've got to be in, enormously glad and think about the life of Jesus. He, he lived with kindness and grace and forgiveness and he reached out to people that everybody else pushed aside and he welcomed all types of people and he was intransient when it came to standing for the things of God and he was obedient to the will of the Father and, 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 and he was authentically honest and you go on and on and on and on and on. That's what God wants to do in my life. I need to think about the life of Jesus, his, 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 his life here. It, it, Astounding, it's astounding. The eternal God who made the heavens and made the earth and spoke them into being became a man. Wow. I was reading John this week and I just came to a passage. I love this passage, John 18. Jesus and his men have gone out to pray and there's a mob that comes to arrest him full of soldiers and and rabble with spears and swords and torches and it's the middle of the night and they, they... they come up menacingly to the place they're praying and Jesus steps in front of his men and he says to them, who are you looking for? 
And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And the Lord said, I am he. And when he said that, he said, the men fell to the ground in terror. I'm going, wow. These are not, you know, average Joes. These are battle-trained, battle-hardened soldiers with scars on their arms from fighting to the death. And they saw a glimpse of the majesty and the greatness and the terror that is resplendently in the person of Jesus, and they fell to the ground. And I went, wow. That was my response. Wow. The person of Jesus. If I'm to be happy, I've got to really think about Jesus and what he wants of me. The third thing is this. I've got to hear this. I've got to be deliberate and radical and thoroughgoing in my exposure to media. There are a lot of young people here today, and well, a lot of people under 40, 50. Those of us who are a little bit older remember a time when you had Walter Cronkite on CBS or Huntley and Brinkley on NBC News, and it was every night at 6.30, and it lasted 30 minutes, and that was the news. Boom, that was it. Now it's 24-7, and most of it, quite honestly, is not news. Most of it is vitriolic people screaming at each other and making statements that some of which is outlandish and stupid. See, if, if, I, if I immerse myself in that way of thinking, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he, Proverbs says, I, 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 won't, I will not be happy. I'll be angry. I'll be sullen. I, 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 so I, I've said it before. I read a newspaper. I go to a couple of podcasts every day, and I'm plenty informed, plenty informed. And so the, the, the problem with me and some of you, some of us more than others, my heart can be drawn to, here's a, a good word, the macabre or the horrifying or the worthless. A couple of examples. So when you hear somebody has been murdered, a lot of people, their first thought is how? <laughs> I mean, it was like Lizzie Borden where they hacked, she hacked her parents to death. Was it like a typhoid Mary where she intentionally made people sick? Was it stabbing? Was it shooting? Was somebody pushing them off a ledge? How? I mean, and, and I always, when I feel myself saying that, I always go, that's not the issue. The issue is they're dead. If there's a school shooting, uh, we hear about it. We're heartbroken. It, it, it's, just, it, it's just horrible. And, and yet, here's what happens. The news cycle gets it, and they do... They find out the, the shooter's name, which I think should never be published because it makes him out, gets his 15 minutes of fame, which, which is what a lot of perverted people want anyway. But that's beside the point. They talk about the person, where he was raised, here are his parents. They interview neighbors. They interview people that knew him. They talk, they have pictures of all the kids that were killed. They talk about what they did, what they're going to do. And all of a sudden, a horrible piece of news becomes part of our experience for maybe for weeks you can't live that way. The, the other day I was reading my wife a book review about, about a, a, a place in, in 1950 in Tibet. The, the Chinese army came in and the Chinese government and they seized Tibet and the Dalai Lama, you've heard of him, had to flee. 
to northern India. He hasn't been back to Tibet since 1950. He's the spiritual leader of that country. And in the year 2000, this book says, the year 2009, it's entitled The Life and Death in a Tibetan Town. But in 2009, a Buddhist monk poured gasoline on his body and set himself on fire, called Self-Immolation, 2009. This book says that since then, as of two months ago, or three months ago, 156 people in this area of Tibet, 30 of them monks, have set themselves on fire and burned themselves to death as an attitude of, of renouncing the Chinese people and longing for the return of the Dalai Lama. I mean, 156 people. I was just astounded. I went to the BBC and started doing some research and looked about this book. And, and then on the BBC, I was t- reading to my wife and I said, oh, here's a clip. It's a 15-second clip, only 15 seconds, of, of a monk who has, who has doused himself and lights himself on fire and has started to hit the button. And Sarah says, don't watch that. Don't watch that. You don't need that to be in your brain. And I thought, she's right. But we're, we're drawn to that. And I think we, we have to, people, we have to have a radical, thoroughgoing break. That's why Philippians 4.8 says this. He says, whatever things are true or honorable or just or pure or lovely or gracious, if there's anything worthy of praise, then let your mind dwell on these things. Think about these things. In other words, that doesn't mean you don't know about suffering and heartache and terror, but as much as you can, think about those things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and of good repute. You, you, you dwell on these things. If I'm to be a happy person, I've got to think about the things of the Lord and how God has blessed me, which means we're number four. If I'm to live happily, I've got to be a person of thanksgiving. Now, Heidelberg Catechism, question one says this. I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version. What is your only hope in life and death? And the answer is, my, the only hope, my only hope in life and death is that I am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who by his shed blood has purchased for me peace with God and has overthrown the power of the devil in my life and that not a hair can fall from my head without his knowledge. Boom, great. Question two, ask what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Or some say to live and die happily. Okay, three things. Number one, how great my sins are. Now, you won't read that in a positive mental attitude book. That's the first step. Know the depth of your sin. Number two, know how your sins have been forgiven. And then number three, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. In other words, if I'm to live and die a happy person. I've got to understand the message of the gospel, the greatness of my sin, the forgiveness of my sin, and I've got to be a person of thanksgiving. Let me ask this question. Are you a person of thanksgiving? Are you thankful? I believe thanksgiving is an art to be learned. It is. I mean, you, 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 you learn to be thankful. You, you go through life and you say, I, I'm thankful. Are you a thankful person? So here's an assignment. At the evening meal with your roommate, with your friends, with your family, just stop and say, somebody, everybody here at the table, name three things for which they're thankful regarding today, that you experienced today. I mean, if you're eight years old, you can say, I'm thankful that I was able to have 
a play, and I was able to play outside. I'm thankful for a good breakfast. I'm thankful for the ability to put together the, these toys. I mean, it, it, you don't have to be, it doesn't have to be outlandishly glorious. It's just develop the habit of thanksgiving. Sometimes, sir and I started doing this, I'll, we'll just point to a word, and we'll go back and forth about, I'm thankful for. So I'm just going to point to a word. The word is barley, B-A-R-L-E-Y. So, for example. B, uh, I was starting to say, I'm thankful for um, hmm, the beauty of the earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I'm thankful that God has made a beautiful creation. A, I'm thankful for, well, first thing came to mind was my daughter, Anna Catherine. R, that's easy. I'm thankful for her husband, Ryan. I'm hitting home run here. This is pretty easy. L, I'm thankful for the, uh, the liberty that is mine to live in a great country of opportunity. E, I'm thankful for the ever-present reality that the ACC will play football this, this summer. I mean, something like that. You, don't, you, you, you can have fun with it. But I mean, you just you, you, you develop a, a spirit of thanksgiving. Brothers and sisters, let us be thankful. <laughs> let us be thankful. And God forgive us for not being thankful. I talked to a man years ago, and he said something that absolutely astounded me. And I thought about it a hundred times. I'll give you a couple of quotes. This man is, was a career military officer. He lived overseas in Europe and Asia and served with distinction. And he said, you know, I realized that if, that if I was born in the United States of America, I hit the jackpot. And he said, and if I was born in the United States of America and married a very fine woman, I hit the jackpot and then inherited a million dollars. And if I knew the reality of Jesus, being born in America, married to a good woman, and had the reality of Jesus, I won the lottery. Life is good. And I thought, amen. My dad was good friends with a man who was a prisoner of war of the Japanese in World War II and had a horrible experience. Horrible experience. As I think all POWs of the Japanese did. And I remember him sitting down with me one day. We were working together, and he was a painter, and I was helping out my dad. And he said, you know, Buster, after what I've been through, I've realized that every, every meal is a picnic, and every day is a vacation. <laughs> so be thankful. See the grace of God and be thankful. Number five, be people who meditate on the Bible. Behold the power of the scripture. Psalm 119 says, The unfolding of thy word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Behold the power of scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 15 says, Be zealous to make yourself a workman that handles the word of God with rightness. Don't give yourself to foolish chatter. In the book of Jeremiah, I've always been intrigued by this. Jeremiah is a tough, is, had a tough assignment. The Lord says, you're going to preach. Nobody's going to listen to you. The people are going to be judged, but you've got to preach it. You've got to lay it out, Jeremiah. Just do it because if you don't lay it out, then you're going to answer to me. And so in chapter 15, maybe, maybe the height of Jeremiah's negative uh, or downcast ministry, the Lord says, you know, the people have not listened to me. Therefore, 
Verse 5, I will appoint over them four kinds of destroyers, declares Jehovah, the sword to kill, dogs to tear, birds of the air, and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. In other words, he says, people are going to be killed, dogs will come in and tear the bodies, the birds will pluck up the flesh and what's left, wild beasts will, will carry out. It's a tough thing. And he says, Jeremiah, you're going to preach. They're not going to listen to you. They're going to reap what they've sowed. He said, but you've got to lay it out. He says, woe is me, my mother, that you bore me, a man of strife and contention to the whole land. But then he gets to verse 16. And this is what he says. This blows my mind. He says this. Thy words were found, and I ate them. And thy words became for me the joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by thy name O Lord God of hosts. Here's Jeremiah in the midst of woe and destruction and people aren't listening to you. And he says, God, because your word is good, your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me the joy and the delight of my heart. If I'm going to be a happy believer in Jesus, I've got to have the scripture, I've got to think through key statements in the scripture in such a way that it determines my thoughts and my actions and my life and it makes me get on a plane of thanksgiving. So you take a verse, maybe a verse of the, every other week or verse of the month, and you just ponder and you think and you think and you walk through and you pray and you sing and you think through that passage. For example, Proverbs 17, 22, it says, uh, 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 let's see. a broken spirit is is destruction. No, I'm, I'm, let me read it. I should have memorized it. Proverbs 17, 22. It's about the joyful heart. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit is cancer to the bones. One translation says a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. A joyful heart is, is, is good medicine. There it is. It's good medicine. A joyful heart. Lord, I'm joyful in you. I rejoice in you. I'm glad for the forgiveness of sin. I'm glad that my sins are canceled. I'm glad that I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm glad that you've broken the power, the dominion of Satan in my life. You can give me victory over this and this and this as I run to you and I run to you, Lord. Build your life on the reality of that and be happy. Yesterday we had a a funeral here. I told Sarah yesterday, I said, you know, I'm, I'm excited about today. She said, well, why? I said, well, there's a new members class. I get to meet some new folks and get to know them a little bit. And that's always fun. And there's a birthday party for a grandchild this afternoon. And I'm going to go to a really fun funeral at 11 o'clock. <laughs> that sounds weird. There's a man who died. We buried him yesterday or did his funeral. He was almost 90 years old. Died full of energy and life in the Lord, sweet man, Al Riley. And um, his son-in-law read a passage, which made it easy for me to speak afterwards. He told me the passage a day ahead, but Matthew 7. And so this really typified my father-in-law. It's the closing statement by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about two builders, two foundations, Two results. And he said one builder was wise and he built his house on rock. God's word. One builder was foolish and he built his house on sand. He didn't listen to the word. He turned from the word. He built it on sand. He said uh, both, both builders had adversity. 
Rains came down and streams rose and winds blew. But this house on the rock stood strong. This house on sand crashed, and Jesus says, and great was the crash thereof. One of the great object lessons that I see as I get older is I see men and women who build their house on the reality of Jesus and his word, and they stand through the adversities of life. And I see other people many times who are more gifted, more intellectually talented, more educationally in sync, uh, more winsome, more together, and they build their house on sand because they don't listen, they don't do it, they don't. And, and that house, listen, it crashes. Adversity hits, hard times hit, and all of us are going to go through adversity. And it crashes. And so I, I, I plead with you, as you're, we're all decision-making places, to build your life on the reality of Jesus. How, how do you live and die happily, like the confession says? Well, we'll expand it just a little bit. Number one, you glory in the gospel. Number two, you immerse yourself and you think about the reality of God in the flesh. Number three, you're... you're you limit yourself to that which brings negativity and anger in your heart. I, I didn't watch the convention last week. I won't watch it this week. I'll read, I'll read excerpts. But I, I find myself getting angry at times. I do that. Then, then number four, you, you work on the art of being thankful. And number five, you meditate on this book that gives life. Life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Uh, th thank you for the simple ability to open the Bible and to read and to encounter you. It's amazing. And we, we pray, Lord, that you would make us people who walk in joy and hope so that we can represent Christ to our culture, so that you give us a platform. I pray that our light would so shine before our neighbors this week, before our contemporaries and our jobs, before people that we just come in contact with, our light was so shined that we would be able to give a statement about the reality of the goodness of Christ. I pray every day we would immerse ourselves in the gospel of grace. I pray that, the, that your life, Jesus, the reality of who you are and how you lived and the, your desire to make us like you would make us humble and kind and peaceable and, and, and gracious and authentically honest and full of mercy and good fruits. Oh, we'd be like that. I pray, Lord, we'd be serious about not letting negativity and, and hours of negativity pour into our hearts. And, oh, God, we would be people who just are thankful, that we would say thank you to people. We'd th say, most importantly, thank you to you, and that we would be people of the book, that we would meditate on it and think about it and chew it and and live it. So, God, give us grace this week. Use us. During this very difficult time, may we as your people lead out and in love and service and kindness in Jesus' name. Amen.